So you are really privileged tonight to be here because I am going to reveal the real esoteric teachings tonight. Beyond Tantra, beyond all that mantra and Tantra. I am going to uh, reveal to you the fool's path. And uh, I'll start with a, uh, a question posed by Woody Allen. Is there a mind-body split? And if so, which is it more important to have? <laughs> Something to think about. But seriously, friends, the fool's path is a real path. And um, it offers great rewards and great relief. And uh, it is a path that you're already following, so you might as well embrace it. It can be traced back to the early Taoists in China, Chuangzi, Laozi, Laozi, and they, they saw that they were at the mercy of these enormous streams, these enormous forces of cosmic movement and biological evolution, all these causes and conditions. They were so at the mercy of that unnameable force that all they could do was go with the flow, let go and go with the flow. Chuangzi used to say, do you really think you can take over the universe and improve it the way it is? Do you can change the way it is? They also realized that they really couldn't know anything about what was going on here. From our level of consciousness, we can't understand. Lao Tzu always used to say things like, others are sharp and clever. I alone am dull and stupid. Making fun of those who claimed to know something about what was going on here and admitting that he didn't know. And Chuangzi echoed that sentiment with a great line, those who know they are fools are not the biggest fools. Another great line of Chuangzi, if you've never read Chuangzi, you must read him, Burton Watson's translation. He says, where can I find a man who has forgotten words? I would like to have a word with him. <laughs> There was this sense among those early Taoists that we really were really at the mercy of all the forces around us and really all we can do is kind of wake up and shrug our shoulders and accept the fact that we don't know and that we're not in charge. Profound teachings, really. Now, if you don't think you're a fool, all you have to do is try meditation. The most profound insight, I think, that we have is that powerful realization that we are not in control of our own minds that you get when you first begin to meditate. You know, you realize. You sit down, and it happens over and over again. You sit down, and you start to 
pay attention to your breath and you see your mind just going off and doing its thing without consulting you, you know, worries about the future, regrets, gets horny, gets happy, whatever, just, you know, on its own. We go all, uh, around under the illusion that we are in control of things, that we are the masters of our fate, of our functioning. And then you, you sit in meditation and you begin to see how out of control you are and you begin to understand and you, you, know, you vow to yourself you'll, you'll never be fooled again. Of course, in the minute you get up, you are immediately back in that drama of self and believing all the brain jerk reactions, I call them, that, that come along in your mind. Fooled again and again. And you know when you sit in meditation, you know the difference. You're really seeing what's going on. You really are having insight. It's a, it's a profound and brand new game among humans to do this kind of practice. And it really is revealing how unconscious we really are. I have this sense that we're all caught in this like this plateau of evolution where we're half awake and half asleep. We know that we're sleeping, but we can't quite wake ourselves up fully yet. I can imagine some future species of Homo, maybe Homo sapiens, 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 you know, three times wise. We now call ourselves Homo sapiens, sapiens, twice wise, which I think was a really bad idea to, you know, add that other extra sapiens on there. Because it's sort of like you, trying to be mindful is similar to trying to be twice wise, I think. I think we should just uh, say that homo sapiens sapiens means that we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. And then, then we won't have to live up to this ideal. But I, uh, which brings me to the, the, the fact that I actually like to think of myself as a fool. It makes everything so much easier. When I understand myself as a fool, then I no longer have to live up to an ideal of, you know, this wise, compassionate, uh, mindful all the time, gracious, you know, I can just be me, caught up often in my petty dramas and, uh, you know, I'm trying to be better, but there's a lot more, when you, when you accept that you're a fool, you, you don't make mistakes anymore. You're just doing what comes naturally. It's really not a path of um, cynicism. It's a path of realism. And it's, uh, the fool's path is not demeaning or mean-spirited. I sort of think of it as, uh, it's sort of like the Four Noble Truths. And that first noble truth in particular, when you really start to accept it, there's a kind of relief, you know, that life is filled with 
unsatisfactoriness, of, uh, filled with uh, suffering on some level. When you accept that, then you realize that you have not been singled out for special punishment. You know, that this, these are the conditions that we are living with. And in the same way, when you accept the path of the fool, when you accept your own foolishness, there's a, a, a great relief. Now, the Buddha understood that we were fools, all neurotic, and uh, he didn't even, he thought we were, we were totally lost. We, he didn't want to teach us at first. Uh, and then Brahma, the God, came down and said, listen, there are some people out there with just a little dust in their eyes. Teach for their sake, you know, maybe you can wipe away a little of the dust and, and uh, relieve some suffering and do some good. So the Buddha agreed to, to teach. But what he taught was really a deconstruction of our sense of specialness and our sense of uh, self-importance and the, the, the kind of um, egotism that we have around this human life that we are living. He said, uh, wait a second. Well, he taught, he taught things like the reflection on the repulsive, the 32 parts of the body, from the hair to the urine. And it's a reflection on the, the repulsive nature of this body when you actually take it apart, you know, you, not when it's all dressed up and it's all in a nice package and your hair is combed, but you take that a piece of that hair out and just look at it alone. Or, you know, I mean, it goes through all of the yuck that's inside of you. Uh, in the Vasudhi Magga, one of the commentarial texts, it says a human face is, quote, full of holes like an insect's nest. Describes the brain as a lump of marrow, the color of a toadstool or the color of milk gone sour. The Buddha and his followers were no romantics, you know. They were really trying to get us to look at the true nature of this, this being on this planet without any frills, without any kind of uh, gloss over it. Not that we don't care for our bodies and care for our lives and love ourselves or love each other, but he wanted to demystify this, this existence that we're all so attached to. To break our attachment. That's why he sent his monks into the cremation grounds and had them look at the bodies and say, my body is the same as that. It's going to become like that. Blue and festering or dissolved into just, you know, shards of bone. He really wanted us to see the nature of this existence. And um, it was really in, in the service of de demystifying this life. What really makes us fools is our sense of self-importance. 
Maybe it came about because we, we seem to have power over all the other species. We seem to be the lords of the earth. I think, uh, I have a theory, it's uncorroborated, but uh, that standing up, standing upright kind of lifted our head too far from the earth and we became remote from everything and we thought, you know, well, crawling beings are much less uh, attractive and clean than standing and upright beings and we kind of, we kind of lifted ourselves above it all. Over most of our history, we've, we've come to think of humans as so specially created that we must have had a, a special deity of, or a, a great being who kind of put us at the center of all creation. That the, we are the reason for all creation. In his secret notebooks, Darwin said, Man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work worthy of the interposition of a deity. It is our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Darwin was very uh, nervous about publishing, you know, his, his story. He said it was, he felt it was like committing a murder because it was a whole worldview that he was uh, contradicting. He was basically saying, we're not specially created and kind of dropped down here from some other realm. We emerged out of the life of this planet. That's what my, my uh, essay in here, this, the Evolution Sutra is all about, is that what if we could embrace that story as our new creation myth, and how would what is what is the spiritual message of that story? But uh, the wife of the bishop of Worcester, on hearing of Darwin's theory, supposedly exclaimed, "Oh dear, let's hope that it is not true, and if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known." <laughs> But until recently, you know, we really believed that our lives were, were, were lived rationally. It was before Freud and Jung and the psychologists. And uh, Freud said, humans have suffered three uh, insults upon their self-love in the last uh, century. The first was, last few centuries. The first was when... Uh, Galileo uh, told us that the sun was the center of the universe, not the earth. Copernicus and Galileo. And then the second was when Darwin said, we're not specially created and plopped down to run here to run the show. Uh, you know, we evolved out of all the other forms of life. And the third one was uh, the modern psychologists who were showing us how we live from the unconscious. And that was way before the neuroscientists who are uh, now telling us that um, we, our, our vaunted uh, sense of choice, sense of reason, sense of agency that we are doing things actually is, 
is a brilliant con job uh, that is perpetrated on us by our brain. Our brain is brilliant and has fooled us into thinking that we are in charge. But in fact, we are not. Uh, in fact, we have three brains. We have a reptilian brain and a neo-mammalian, uh, a, a mammalian brain and a neocortex or a neo-mammalian brain. And they grow in the womb in each of us as in the same order they grew in nature. First there was a brain stem, and there's a brain stem and a reptilian brain, and then there's a limbic system that grows over that, and then the neocortex. But uh, neuroscientists have realized that these brains don't override, one doesn't override the other two. They're actually very intimately interconnected, and in fact, we use a hundred percent of our reptilian and mammalian brains, and only 20, 30 percent of our new human brain. And there's some speculation that we use that 20 or 30 percent of the new human brain just to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> There's more and more evidence of this that, that uh, decisions are made on an unconscious level that most of what goes on, most of our cognition and our decisions and our behavior is governed on an unconscious level. And the consciousness and the, and the story we put on it all comes in very late in the sequence of events kind of weaves everything that happens to us into a story. There are these great studies about uh, working people, uh, clinicians and, and uh, researchers working with people who've had the corpus callosum severed so that the two halves of the brain are, are not connected. And commands are flashed to the right hemisphere which can understand very basic speech. Um, but not, it doesn't do a lot of verbal work. So a command will be flashed to the right hemisphere telling this person to get down on the floor and crawl around. And then the researchers ask the person, why are you doing this? And the person inevitably makes up some kind of story about why they are doing it. You know, I, I wanted to buy a rug and I'm looking to see what yours is made of. Or uh, Nobody says, well, you flashed a, a, a command to my right hemisphere. That's why I'm down here on the floor. And it's called the interpreter program. But um, the point is <laughs> that we are really fooled into thinking that we're in charge and we're not. And... Uh, that really is the bottom line. We are, we are fools. We're, on the, we're fools not because of anything we did, but because we're human. And we're a species of fool. There's no question about it. I mean, do you need proof? Um, how about the nuclear arms race? Remember, I, some of you are old enough to remember the nuclear arms race. You youngsters, you don't, you, you don't, I don't see a lot of, uh, this was this thing that went on between the United States and Soviet Union for about a half a century, where each side would keep building these enormous missiles. And uh, they even, they, they, there was one point where it was estimated that 
uh, a nuclear war, they could kill everybody on the planet ten times over. And they made up a new word uh, for it. They called it overkill. That was, that was, and it was part of this whole philosophy of mutual assured destruction, which said, okay, if we can blow them up as many times as they can blow us up, then neither side will try it. And so that just kept going and going and going. It was madness, complete madness. Mutual assured destruction, M-A-D, madness. And then when the Pentagon actually decided they were going to um, not build these massive missiles, but they were going to build little, uh, little nuclear missiles that could be specially targeted and could actually maybe be used without triggering a nuclear war, they went to a new strategy officially declared as nuclear utilization targeting strategy. <laughs> Nuts. <laughs> they went officially in their own from mad to nuts. I mean, you know, are they cynical jokesters over there or what? I mean, what else? I mean, look at, look at what's gone on. I mean, obviously the overpopulation. We didn't, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know. It wasn't our fault. And so nobody's to blame, really. We're foolish because we don't understand the consequences of our action. But Six billion people? I, I, had a, I saw a bumper sticker that said, six billion people can't be right. <laughs> you know, it's... We, we have gotten ourselves into such a, a mess with this overpopulation. They expect nine billion by the year 2050. And yet nobody's talking about population control. Nobody, no, no presidential candidate. It's nuts. It's at the bottom of all of our problems. We, we, we're, we're, we're currently living through the fifth largest species extinction, uh, the species die-off in biological history. Other times that it, it's happened has been the result of a huge meteor crashing into the earth or enormous shifts in climate, ice ages. and I mean, we ha are having that impact on the other species of life in this, on this planet. And we were all driving around, you know, in our big cars and drinking our coffee and just about to become happy. Just about. <laughs> foolish, foolish. Uh, sometimes I think about the irony of meditation practice. You know, I... I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. And now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? <laughs> Let's see. Gary Snyder says, if we humans are here for any purpose at all except, collate, except for collating texts, running rivers and learning the stars. I suspect it is to entertain the rest of nature. We are a gang of sexy primate clowns. Clowns, uh, as you may know, are related to the fools. They're a little more physically foolish, but uh, 
in the circus, they are really portraying all of us, you know. Uh, the clown climbs up the ladder only to realize it's leaning against the wrong wall or looks for the hat that's on his head, you know. It's, he's really mocking all of us. He's playing all of us. He's very sympathetic. Uh, and, and his face is always painted with either a big smile or a big frown, you know, kind of mocking our, our moods, our, our condition. Charlie Chaplin was a great uh, clown who always played every man and revealed through his movies how we were all caught up in these great movements of history. You know, you're, he came to Ellis Island, you know, he's the immigrant who gets caught up in being an immigrant and the rush and the changes of, of uh, living standard and filling out the papers and trying to understand the language and where he gets caught in the gold rush. He's really playing all of us. We're all really the victims of, of the circumstances of our times. You know, if you'd have been born 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, none of us would be studying meditation. It's just, it's just now. Just started. Well, what I think is the most obvious um, evidence that we are fools, of a, we are a species of fools, is the fact that we continually believe that our current understanding of how the world works is the final word. And yet, every hundred years or so, it all gets overturned and we realize that we, we had it wrong. I mean, and it's, we're, we're at that moment when suddenly, you know, we got these pictures back from outer space that showed us there were millions of galaxies. Not solar systems, galaxies. Millions of them. We've like disappeared on our own map of the universe. We're no longer findable. And so, of course, we need, you know, classes in self-esteem because... <laughs> but our whole world has been so turned upside down. It's a fire sign theater said once, you know... Everything you know is wrong. So we need some practices without methods of realization, techniques. There would be no path of the fool. So I, I have some uh, possible rituals that we can all do. Uh, so collectively, collective practices, I have some individual practices as well. But first, the collective practices. For one thing, April Fool's Day should be an international holiday and elevated to, a, to great importance. Um, I don't know how many of you ever take part in the St. Stupid's Day Parade. I do, I've been doing it for about 20 years. It's been going on for 30 years. We gather and uh, fools and clowns and people dressed up and with horns and bubbles and, you know, the usual gang of uh, suspects. 
And uh, we marched through the business district of San Francisco on April Fool's Day at noon. And uh, some of the uh, things that we've done over the years, uh, one year we went to the Prudential Life Insurance Building Plaza and we chanted, we want insurance. We <laughs> want insurance. And this year, this year as we were walking through the financial district and people were gathering on the sidewalks to, to kind of watch <coughs> us go by, we started chanting, go back to work. <laughs> go back to work. But, uh, so, collective uh, fool's confessions, I think, would be really in order. Where you get together in small groups or in communities and uh, you do something like maybe the Homer Simpson forehead slapping, you know, uh, mudra. Uh, and, <laughs> and you all, it's like the Jews when they beat their breast on Yom Kippur to we've all sinned, you know, only this, we're, we're all foolish. So, so let's practice. Get your palm ready. Okay, uh, everyone who believed that after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, things would get better in the world. So, okay, those who believed in the purity of baseball or the Catholic priesthood or the American electoral process, don't. Okay, just a couple more. Those who believe that meditation would solve all their problems, don't. Doesn't that feel good? It's sort of like, all right, nobody's got it. You, know, you can also do, you know, those who believe that someday they're going to get it all together. Yeah. So we also need individual practices. And I, I really think that we are too grim about this and that we, we really need to delight ourselves. And we can play with our meditation. We don't have to be you know, hold on to the breath for dear life. I'm, you know, and, and mainly, I, I think that the most important thing is to forgive yourself over and over and over again. You are not your fault. <laughs> we're, we're children of evolution, right? You're not your fault. It's like, it's so obvious. I mean, did you choose to be in this body? No. Did you choose your personality? I mean, the geneticists say, you know, you're, we're all born with a particular temperament and then, you know, to be, uh, to be aggressive or withdrawn or novelty-seeking. There's a whole list of genetic selections for different personalities, temperaments. And then the psychologists say whatever part of your personality isn't established at birth will be firmly in place long before you have any choice in the matter in early childhood which brings us to the fact that you didn't get to choose your parents, the dear ones who will set your lifelong neurosis for you. <laughs> now you don't, you're, you're not free to be yourself. You're forced to be yourself. You're forced to be who you are. So you forgive yourself over and over again and be playful. I've, I have a number of uh, suggestions. I mean, one was that, you know, put, just put a bemused smile on your mindfulness. And that can come when you really realize that what you're observing here is not so individual to you, but is really the human condition, uh, you know, with all of its instincts and its 
uh, you know, foibles. And, um, but you can also, I sometimes look at my mind as, a, you know, having different channels, uh, different forms of entertainment channels. And uh, so at times I'll be watching uh, grand opera, say, you know, with a lot of Strum and Drang and, you know, agonizing arias and life and death and, you know, it, it's blood, there's, there will be blood kinds of scenes. Other times it's, it's sitcom kind of uh, mind state where, you know, what did I read about Brad and Angelina yesterday? You know, uh, should we really redecorate the kitchen and, you know, little things like that, and silly things. And, uh, Judge Judy, uh, you know, there's, there's always, you know, who's to blame for this? You know, why am I this way? Why'd that happen? What, you know, let's go to court. Um, what else? Oh, theater of the absurd, you know. What does it mean? What, what, are, what are we doing here? Why are we this way? And, and of course, American Idol. You're always rehearsing some performance or another, aren't you? When I get there, I'm going to say, "We're not going to." I'm going to be, you know, how that goes. But it's really a, a matter of of having somewhat of a of a lighter and and more bemused at, attitude towards yourself and your your own your own brain, your own mind. This is Chogyam Trungpa. Do your meditation at the simple matter-of-fact level instead of with some meaningful religious or philosophical undertone. In other words, have a sense of humor about what you're doing. Remember, things aren't as heavy as we think they are. Instead, they are floating above the ground, funny, swift, and lucid. There's kind of an existential strangeness that, you know, I, I, I really actually like getting in touch with when I sit and meditate. You know, it, it does, it brings my life into a, a context where I can reflect on its strangeness and its incomprehensible nature rather than being lost in its drama. This is uh, Alan Watts. What we need is a view of ourselves that is less grandiose. All the other species of life seem to be free from our human scheming and self-importance. The birds and beasts indeed pursue their business of eating and breeding with utmost devotion, but they do not pretend that it serves higher ends or that it makes a significant contribution to the progress of the world. He says, our human projects and talents such as the powers of thought, are indeed natural marvels, but then so are the immense beaks of the toucans and the fabulous tails of the birds of paradise and the towering necks of the giraffe. And when we can view our talents as just one among many of nature's wonders, then our self-importance dissolves in laughter. Furthermore, we will begin to see that we have become too cunning and too practical for our own good. And for this very reason, we are in need of a new philosophy, which, like nature has no purpose or no consequence other than itself.
I think that that's what the world needs right now is really a a long, deep breath and a deep sense of, you know, we don't know and we don't know where we're going. And I mean, I think the, the main thing right now would be let progress is great, but we it's gone on too long. You know, let's call, let's have a let's have a decade of no progress. No advances in technology, no speeding up of anything. You know, we need that settling back uh, experience and that uh, just life for its own sake and not for some, some great significance. As Blake said, you know, if the fool would persist in her folly, she would become wise. And I think by embracing our foolishness, we learn a lot. We, we move from the realm of the foolish fool into the realm of the great fool. And I've always thought, and I, I wrote a book about it called uh, Essential Crazy Wisdom, that Jesus and Buddha and, and uh, Lao Tzu, and, they're all great fools. They were all kind of reviled in their time or, you know, they were all considered fools in their time, basically. They all went off on these kooky tangents, you know, started little cults and went off to the forest or into the desert. The difference between a foolish fool and a great fool, the foolish fool is always easily lost, whereas the great fool is at home everywhere. The foolish fool and his money are soon parted, but the great fool gives his money away. The highest beings that I know are all so light and, and playful. The Dalai Lama was uh, giving a major teaching in, at Madison Square Garden about four, four years ago. The Kala Chakra. The Wheel of Time. Very portentous and they had the big Tibetan horns and, you know, the lots of monks with the big hats and the whole place was draped with the Tibetan flags and finery and this big throne they had set up for him so that he would, you know, it was like two days of teaching. And he came up and he sat down on the throne and it was a mattress, you know, covered with uh, purple cloth. And he sat down on the throne and it bounced and he kind of went, and then he, he did it again. <laughs> and he did it again. You know, he started he's up there bouncing and the whole audience is laughing. And, you know, that was the beginning of this portentous, big teaching. I'll never forget when, when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to the United States and he came to the, the Green, Green Gulch, to the Zen Center. And uh, we started meditating. And, you know, the Zen students are pretty. And he said... Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, please, when you, when you meditate, smile, please. And they were like, what? <laughs> smile when you meditate? I love, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had some great gathas, he little, little sayings that he would use throughout the day. Like when he got into a, a, an automobile, he would say, the car goes fast, I go fast. That was his, 
and one one of my favorites was breathing in I am still water remembering the temporary nature of governments I breathe out (laughs) I think one of the keys to the fool's path is to remember that it's your mind is not a personal problem it is our common condition we share it uh, all of your attempts to get your you know your material life together is held in common where it's life is an impractical joke it is impossible to get it all together especially when you've got so much stuff to get together like we do have and remember that we are just a baby species I'm always I I really try to remember that all the time there are a hundred million generations of of dinosaurs there are ten million generations of mammals before humans came along we've had maybe thirty generations of modern humans fifty something like that Uh, thousand excuse me Uh, twenty to thirty thousand not just but anyway (laughs) we just got these big brains and you know we're this is a whole new game that we're 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 playing here as as Robert Thurman says it's an evolutionary sport Buddhist meditation we are just learning how to be aware of ourselves it's it's brand new and when you remember that then you forgive yourself and you also have some kind of hope you realize that maybe we are as a species waking up and that what you're doing is not being done just for you it's being done as a collective uh, movement we were we're waking up together so uh, humans should not be tried as adults I think is it, is it. <laughs> so I'll close with the this is from uh, Lou Welch yes from Lou Welch this is a one sentence to drive yourself sane the next time you are doing something absolutely uh, ordinary or better yet the next time you're doing something absolutely necessary such as washing your hands cleaning the kitchen um, sweeping the porch say to yourself so it's all come to this <laughs> small sentence to drive yourself sane so any questions about the fool's path I, you know I, now you're going to be afraid to ask a question right because you think you look foolish no come on ask a question I know nothing about any, just about everything but those who know they are fools are not the biggest fools. So, so there. Uh, well, I'm curious about that William Blake quote about uh, who persists in his folly will become wise. Yeah. Well, how long is that going to take? <laughs> he who persists in it, she who persists in her folly will become wise. How long will it take? Well, it can be instant, you know. I think it, I think it can be instant, just like enlightenment. 
I heard a wonderful line when I was, I just sat for uh, three and a half weeks at, at Spirit Rock, and in one Dharma talk, somebody quoted Suzuki Roshi saying, when I realized that no moment is repeatable, I was enlightened. And I carry that line around and I say it to myself and, and it just immediately drops me into this moment and it enhances the kind of poignancy of each moment. Um, I think it can happen instantly. When are you not a fool? When you're sitting in meditation, how often is that? Maybe you're not a fool sometimes when you're walking down the street, not formally meditating. Questions? Answers? Yes. I no, I'd love I I'd love that. I I actually in in my book I I say that one of the uh, a department of crazy wisdom would be great. And you have I mean it's exactly what our government needs is a a department that is staffed by anthropologists and historians and uh, um, mystics and uh, jesters. I mean we're suffering from. Uh, a left brain government, right? We need a balance of powers, and uh, all our power. Our, our government's run by economists and politicians and military people. That's why it's you know such a mess. Definitely a department of crazy wisdom. I hear your, I hear what you're saying, and and uh, I not only hear it. I mean, when I reflect on our predicament, I think we have to do everything in our power to stop the destruction of the Earth, Earth life support systems. At the same time, part of me says we have to learn to let it all go. It sounds paradoxical, but I live with that dilemma just as I assume others do in this post postmodern world. We're aware of the disaster that is taking place on Earth, and at the same time we have knowledge of hundreds of billions of solar systems like our own. Are we over-dramatizing our human existence? Are we too sentimental about life on Earth? And then uh, what resolves the dilemma is Mother Nature herself, who boldly writes out directions for us in our DNA, the primary command being survive. So, you know, it's... But absolutely, I, I have a I have a sense that, I mean, if, if this is if we're part of nature, then this is what nature intended that we go all out of whack the way we are, and whether we survive or not has maybe not that much to do with us, as Chuang Tzu says. Can you think you can take over the universe and improve it? Yeah. 
which is why meditation, I, I mean, in some ways meditation is in the answer to that because it says it's, it's about this moment. I mean, if we uh, are anguishing over where we've come, we, are not, we have to become what we want it to be. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if we go around tearing our hair about how terrible it all is and how it's anguishing, and you know, we just make it worse. We have to have a kind of positive uh, approach, and, and part of that is saying, yeah, maybe it's maybe we have to let it go. I'm, I take heart in, in partly in looking at the big picture, the biggest picture, and realize that the word ecology is 40 years old. The word ecology. And that we have a, the first UN conference on the environment was in 1970. We, we're just waking up to the fact that we, we've begun, that we're destroying the life support systems of the planet. So, you know, and we're pretty smart and we're pretty inventive and there's, you know, a good chance that we, we'll come out of this all right and maybe learn some things in the process. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, the modern environmental movement is just a baby. If it's done, yeah, I mean, whatever you're called on to do, you know, I mean, what your DNA is telling you, go out and survive. And however you see that, however you see that taking place, you know, you go out and, and make an effort towards arranging the world so that it does take place. Yeah, we all want, you know, let's see what happens. Just to see what happens. That's what John, John Cage, I once had the great privilege of interviewing him right, right before he died. And uh, he said, yeah, I'd like to live longer and longer just to see what will happen. For some ultimate, ultimate something, what is it? Until we all get enlightened? Oh. <laughs> you better be careful before you take your bodhisattva vows, you know? I mean, if you're really going to save all beings, we don't know, do we? Yes? What about... Yeah. Right, it's leading somewhere. There you go. <laughs> it, uh, but isn't it skillful to conceive of the goal in order to? Yes, I yes. Yes, I agree that it is. There is. Uh, 
an enhanced consciousness that you can develop through meditation practice where you are not only uh, less foolish in that you understand karma better you understand your how to how to uh, quiet and calm your own you know inherited instincts better and you know everybody and everything is enhanced around you because of what you develop in meditation so you can become less foolish uh, that's just a you know caveat because I I, I do you know I'm selling this stuff you know I have to make my living I'm a professional Buddhist so I gotta say you know it is leading somewhere don't 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 get me wrong but we don't know where that somewhere is we actually we we kind of do it's pretty sweet pretty sweet all right well I think uh, that's about enough let me let me close with a Pablo Neruda poem we are many of the many people who I am who we all are I can't find a single one they disappear among my clothes they've left for another city when everything seems to be set to show me off as intelligent, the fool I always keep hidden takes over all that I say. At other times, I'm asleep among distinguished people, and when I look for my brave self, a coward unknown to me rushes to cover my skeleton with a thousand fine excuses. When a, when a house catches fire, instead of the fireman I summon, an arsonist bursts on the scene, and that's me. What can I do? What can I do to distinguish myself? How can I pull myself together? All the books I read are full of dazzling heroes, always sure of themselves. I die with envy of them. And in films full of wind and bullets, I goggle at the cowboys. I even admire the horses. But when I call for a hero, out comes my lazy old self. So I never know who I am, or how many I am or will be. I... I'd love to be able to touch a bell and summon the real me because if I really need myself, I mustn't disappear. I would like to know if others go through the same things that I do, have as many selves as I have, and see themselves similarly. And when I've exhausted this problem, I'm going to study so hard that when I explain myself, I'll be talking geography. A moment of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.